This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9, this is The Breakfast Grill. I'm Keith Kam. 2023 was indeed a year that human rights awareness certainly came to the forefront, even more significantly than ever before. This was especially stark towards the tail end of the year when it became clear that the so-called developed world did not know how to handle such flagrant violations of human rights in the purported name of self-defence. And so the international NGO Human Rights Watch found itself even busier than ever before. And that's putting it extremely mildly, because among other things, HRW researchers investigate international armed conflicts and civil wars, reporting on violations of human rights and working to protect civilians caught in the crossfire. On the show this morning is Tirana Hassan, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, who has been at this position since the middle of 2022. Good morning, Tirana. How are you? Good morning, Keith. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Tirana, just as a background, what does HRW do? Um, so, Human Rights Watch is an international human rights organisation. We work in 100 countries all over the world and we document violations of human rights from human rights violations committed against refugees and migrants, women's rights violations, children's rights, the rights of LGBT, the LGBT community, and even the rights of people with disabilities and older people. And, you know, on top of that, as you mentioned, we also document the rights of civilians mm-hmm. uh, who are trapped in conflict. And we do that by essentially documenting the facts. We have trained researchers who go on the ground, who bear witness, who collect physical evidence. We even have arms experts and weapons experts who can analyse fragments. And then we take that information and we essentially, we mobilise and we expose that information. So that's really around taking our reports, our videos, and we make sure that using the world's press or taking it directly to those who have power, those who actually have the responsibility to make change. So that might might be the United Nations, Mm -hmm. it might be ASEAN governments, it may even be corporations. But we take that information and we essentially, we mobilise and pressure governments and institutions to actually make change to stop violations and hold perpetrators to account. How do you bring perpetrators to justice? And is there any way you can, uh, do you have a role in preventing or de-escalating conflicts before they actually get to the point where, you know, you actually need to have the perpetrators brought to justice? That's a really good question. I mean, you won't be surprised that, you know, there are many indicators and reasons that conflicts emerge. And one of, interestingly, the main reasons that perpetrators tend to escalate their behaviour and that conflicts often exist is it doesn't come out of the blue. It's often because those who have been responsible for human rights abusers have not been held to account and there has been impunity. And that essentially empowers them to continue to escalate and commit more abuses. But there are many ways that you can hold perpetrators to account. You don't necessarily just have to wait until terrible things have happened. You essentially have to raise the cost of human rights abuses. And we do that by seeing the initial warning signs and mobilizing Mm -hmm. those who can potentially prevent further abuses from happening to taking action in real time. 
And that's something Human Rights Watch does. We start documenting in real time. And we can mobilise, for example, governments to take action by using immediate measures like targeted sanctions or travel bans on perpetrators. What we're trying to do there is raise the cost of abuses and deter an escalation. But when you can't do that, it's really important that we are able to collect the evidence to mm. identify, not to say what has happened, but identify who was responsible for it so that when a moment does open up and there can be legal proceedings, you know, whether that be proceedings in a domestic court or a regional court or even the highest international courts like the International Criminal Court or Court of Justice, that the evidence will be there to ensure that perpetrators can be tried, they can have their day in court, and we have the evidence to prove um, what abuses have taken place and that they're responsible. Tirana, I have to ask you this. You were with Amnesty International prior to HRW. You've worked with Doctors Without Borders. You are obviously no stranger to human suffering and injustice. How do you stay sane? How do you maintain some sense that there is hope at the end of the day? Um, you know, I think that the biggest thing for me is that I don't think that there is an alternative. When you are working in this field, you aren't just exposed to suffering, you also see incredible resilience. Mm. The people throughout my career, whether it's as a humanitarian worker or as a human rights investigator in armed conflict, I have documented the stories of people who demonstrate such bravery and such resilience. And if they aren't giving up, then I don't see an option for us to give up either. You know, we all have a role to play. I think one of the most dangerous things for our common humanity is that we detach ourselves from world events, that when we do see wrongdoing or suffering, whether it be in our community or whether it be on the global scale, we all are able to play a role in affecting change. So that might be that we mobilise the politicians that we are. It might even motivate some people to become, you know, active in the international arena um, or in politics. But also it's about being informed. It's about making sure that we are keeping these issues live and we are generating power and discussion and yeah. making sure that the truth is out there. I'm sure you personally also have a stand on certain issues, as do I. How do you put that aside and tell yourself that at the end of the day, it's a human issue, not one of a particular race or religion or ideology? Yeah, for Human Rights Watch, you know, we have a very clear mandate. Everything that we document and what we advocate on is grounded in international humanitarian law. So that's the laws of war in armed conflict and international human rights law. And so really when we're documenting the rights and the wrongs that are happening in the world, we're doing that through the lens of human rights. What we're really saying is that, you know, human rights are, are nice to have. They're actual legal obligations obligations that states have. And so our role and my role is to simply document the facts. Uh, it is to say what has happened to be able to provide the evidence. And that is what human rights researchers do around the world. And then our advocates take that and put it in front of decision makers. And we create recommendations on how to stop that harm. So we have a very clear framework that we apply. And, um, you know, I think that for us, neutrality is not about 
um, we just don't take sides. You know, when we are in our conflict, we document abuses by all sides of the conflict. And it won't be a surprise to you or your listeners to say that nobody likes to be called a human rights abuser. But our job is to call out when abuses are happening. It doesn't matter who's perpetrated them. You guys depend on contributions and donations from private individuals and foundations worldwide. You stress very vehemently that there's no donations by governments directly or indirectly. What are the challenges like currently? Your expenses come up to about 92, 93 million a year, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, so yes, you know, if you're not taking government money, and you're not taking money from corporations, for example, who you're doing investigations on so you can't be accused of being bought off. That really does limit the pool. But we're very lucky in that, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who believe in human rights, mm. who know the importance of having neutral organisations, independent organisations who are prepared to go out and document and not be swayed by governments or parties who have a stake in a matter and just document the truth and make the recommendations that need to be made and see the investigations through to a final result. And I think these are the people that support Human Rights Watch. It's um, individuals. Um, it's family foundations who want to make a contribution to protecting human rights worldwide. But certainly it does make the pool of our supporters much smaller than it would if we were to take government money. But we've yeah. never done that and we never will. Yeah, and that's the one thing I was just curious if you might be able to address. There were allegations that the Qatar government had donated something like 3 million euros to HRW. Was there any truth in that report? No, that was a... Um, malicious report that was put out. And this happens a lot. You find that when there are particular groups who want to discredit Human Rights Watch's reputation, particularly if these are groups who are protecting particular governments that have been accused of serious human rights abuses. And in this instance, I think this was a pro-Israeli outlet that had started this story. But Human Rights Watch, you know, responded to the journalists who put this to us. And, you know, our records will show that we have never received any funding, nor would we ever receive money from Qatar. And interestingly enough, we actually have a large body of work about abuses of migrant workers by the Qatari authorities and have been working to hold Qatar to account for abuses, particularly uh, most recently around the World Cup and the migrant workers who died and were injured because of appalling labour conditions in Qatar in the creation of the World Cup stadium. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Tirana Hassan, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. On the other side of the break, we explore Malaysia's own human rights track record this is BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill. Brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. BFM 89.9 on The Breakfast Grill this morning is Tirada Hassan, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch who also has a bit of a Malaysian connection. How is that, Tirana? Um, actually, I have a proud Malaysian connection. My mother is from Kotobaru, actually. <laughs> nice. So she grew up in Kwantan. Now, Tirana, Human Rights Watch just released your latest world report covering events of 2023. I actually don't need to read the report completely to tell me that 2023 has been an atrocious year for human rights challenges. Your opening statement says we need to do things differently in 2024. That's an understatement if there. Was one. Tell us more. 
you know, yes, 2023 has been a, a grueling year for human rights. You know, obviously, it's been a year that's been marred with conflict. We saw the atrocities that were committed when Hamas-led fighters attacked Israel and deliberately killing hundreds of people and taking hostages. And then the Israeli government responded by blocking the entry of all but a trickle of fuel and food and humanitarian aid to Gaza's 2.3 million people. We've seen the consequences of the Israeli military bombardment that have killed 22,000 civilians, uh, including many children, and reduced neighbourhoods to rubble. But on top of that, you know, there have also been, there's a conflict that has been raging in Sudan, and obviously the conflict in Ukraine persists. And so, you know, and we haven't seen the sort of mobilisation from the international community that we would expect to all of these conflicts. Actually, we saw a rather muted response whilst there was rightly strong condemnation of the attacks by Hamas in Israel. We saw an inconsistent and muted condemnation of the bombardments by the Israeli Defence Force in Gaza. And we've seen essentially, you know, very limited outcry about the killings of civilians which have been ethnically motivated in Sudan. Um, and when you see these sort of double standards, when world leaders in the institutions, the member states of the United Nations, do not uphold the same accountability and demand the same rights for all people, that really does undermine the system and it, it sends a message that not all lives are worth the same. Um, and, you know, what this takes, if we are going to look at a different 2024, we must demand um, an end to these double standards. We need to see governments across the world uh, standing up with equal condemnation and ensuring that all perpetrators, no matter how powerful, are being held to account. And we're mobilising the institutions like the UN Security Council to do that. Um, but it's not just there, you know, the conflict in Myanmar continues to rage also. And we've seen across Asia that there has been a very limited response. Now, Malaysia has and Indonesia have both you know, being the stronger of the regional states to condemn the junta in Myanmar. But we really need to see more targeted consequences, including ensuring that sanctions and stopping of weapons transfers and ensuring that, uh, for example, jet fuel that stops the planes that are conducting the bombardments on Myanmar villages, uh, stopping the sale of that. So, you know, we need to see a more robust response to the conflicts. And on top of that, across the region, we've seen some, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia, we've seen a a pattern of, you know, and this this matches the global trend as well, that we are seeing more and more attacks on the institutions mm. that we rely on to protect human rights. And by that, we're talking about attacks on the courts, um, you know, governments trying to impede the functions and independence of courts. We've also seen attacks on free press in a number of countries, um, journalists being targeted and certain newspapers being actually shut down, um, being targeted with things mm. like cyber libel laws. So criticism of the government essentially becomes illegal. 
And we've also seen in some places that even civil society, NGOs, human rights organizations are being targeted by governments who don't want to be held to account, that they want to erode the checks and balances that are required to ensure free and open rights respecting societies. And, you know, we must protect that free space. And if governments are doing this, then it takes regional bodies, the neighbours, the international community to apply the pressure to ensure that such abusive measures are corrected and don't persist. Tirana, if we zoom into Malaysia, I last met with a few people from HRW back in January last year. Phil Robertson, your Asian Division Deputy Director. At that time, the Anwar Ibrahim administration was still fresh from the last general election. And Phil mentioned that the engagement with the government seemed positive at that time. What has it been like after a year? Yeah, so, you know, the we were optimistic, but um, in his first year, I think the Prime Minister has largely failed, unfortunately, to uphold his pledges to address repression and corruption. We had thought that, you know, I think that this was a promise that had been made to Malaysian voters, but the government simply has failed, uh, for example, to abolish or, or reform abusive laws including the Sedition Act and Communications and Multimedia Act, which continue to be used to criminalise free speech. Um, And we've also seen state-sponsored discrimination in Malaysia against LGBT people is continuing and is pervasive. Um, And unfortunately, uh, we've seen that the Prime Minister has actually spoken out against recognising and protecting LGBT Malaysians. So, you know, this this is not encouraging, but the government has an opportunity. In 2024, the government should recommit to its rights respecting agenda by fulfilling its campaign promises. Your report also highlights the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, Malaysia is also not a signatory to the UN's 1951 Refugee Convention or the 1967 Protocol. What is the significance of this? How important is it for Malaysia to do this? Or is it just uh, all right to just be human to everyone? Um, You know, I think governments uh, that want to be taken seriously on the international stage, they commit to the same sets of uh, international legal standards and protections that bind us all. And that's how governments prove themselves to be responsible international actors. So it would be in Malaysia's best interest. It would be, um, it is important for Malaysia mm-hmm. to, you know, become a party to the UN Refugee Convention. What's particularly worrying, that in the absence of being a party to the convention, uh, Malaysia also lacks the, you know, robust domestic asylum procedures. So essentially there is a a vacuum. And here we have 180,000 refugees and asylum seekers that are registered with uh, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, but they're not granted legal status. And that leaves them unable to formally work or enroll in government schools. And actually, the government, besides not even signing the convention and holding itself to the highest standard, it actually has denied the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights access to the immigration detention centres since 
2019. So, you know, we think that there's a lot that Malaysia can do in relation to better protection of asylum seekers, refugees and migrants, um, including actually stopping detaining refugees and children and trafficking victims. Looking forward, though, tell me what HRW is planning to do in terms of helping Malaysia improve on its human rights record. Um, I, I guess we can start with how you plan to deepen your work with local CSOs and NGOs. Yeah, so, I mean, critical to Human Rights Watch's work um, everywhere that we we operate is our partnership with local human rights organisations and activists um, around the country. And so, you know, we have a long history of working with Malaysian human rights organisations and will continue to do so. These are the people with the deep connections to the communities, with the deep knowledge um, of the Malaysian context and, you know, and speak on behalf of communities who have faced human rights abuses. So, you know, one thing to remember is that no one organisation uh, or one person is, you know, solely responsible. As I said in the beginning, you know, we all have a role to play and we are much stronger together when we partner together between our strengths at the local and the international level. And I know that Human Rights Watch is a lot stronger in Malaysia uh, for our partnerships with, you know, the lawyers, the human rights activists and the civil society organisations across the country. What about those with the deep pockets like corporations and MNCs? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we do a lot of work actually in, you know, looking at um, often human rights abuses that have happened within um, through the conduct of corporations. Um, and, you know, it's not all about finger wagging. What we're really trying to do is point out when there are human rights abuses. And we've seen this in companies who are involved, for example, in uh, uh, forestries, um, for example, where, you know, human rights abuses have been very much linked to deforestation. Uh, in a number of places, including in Malaysia. And the key is that you need to be able to present the evidence to corporations and then allow corporations to be able to make the changes. And one of the things we do is not just to scream about all the terrible things that are happening, mm. but we're also, our role is also to make recommendations to corporations and to private sector about how they can do things differently and do things better and, you know, really implement their responsibilities under business and human rights uh, standards. And so, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, um, as people who are not just documenting harm, but actually putting forward a pathway to better human rights protections that we hope would be a benefit to corporations and private enterprise. Tirana, thank you so much for the chat and all the best to you and your team in the work that you do. Thank you very much for having me on. On The Breakfast Grill this morning, we were talking to Tirana Hassan, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. I'm Keith Kam for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile, Malaysia's number one 5G network. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.